Welcome to our show. This is going to be terrible. We're three friends hanging out, talking about whatever seems interesting at the time. Don't say we didn't warn you. We haven't met before. My name is Robert. Hi, I'm James. Hey, gang. This is Nathan. Isn't it gong? No, no. We decided to review M. Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender, which premiered in 2010, five years after Avatar The Last Airbender first aired on Nickelodeon, the show that the movie is based on. Netflix has recently made all of the Legend of Aang episodes, The Legend of Korra, and The Last Airbender movie available for streaming. And seeing as all three of us have at least watched the original series, we thought this was a good time to review the abysmal introduction and indeed conclusion of the Avatar cinematic foray. So I got access to cable network TV in 2004 and finally caught up on Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon. And I remember seeing the ads for Avatar The Last Airbender before it aired. And I could tell right away that the creators had a story they were eager to share. And catching other behind the scenes commercials, talking about their influences for building the show's world, as well as having an actual martial arts master consulting choreographer so they would be using real world practices in the show. And Sifu Kisu giving an interview himself where he was so excited to develop how the different nations were able to bend the elements and the different styles he drew from to develop the movements and even how the different benders would stand, walk, and just hold themselves was infectious. You could tell this was a project that everyone involved was eager to see come to fruition. What about you, James? I was originally introduced to the series during the nine month gap between the second and the third seasons way back in 2007. I had seen some random episodes on cable back when people actually subscribed to cable. And then I decided to track down the rest of the series and watch it all and kept up with it as it was airing book three. I eventually also saw the movie in theaters. And at first I thought it was just okay in the first viewing, but on further reflection later on, I just was more annoyed than annoyed by all of the little things, which we will get into later. And I was super, super excited when the sequel series, The Legend of Korra, was announced in 2010, finally came out in 2012, and aired for four seasons. And I watched them as they were airing, and it was really freaking awesome. Some might even say better than the original Aang Avatar series. And then, of course, there were sequel comic books that started in 2012 that followed up on some of the stuff that the Aang series did not fully answer some of the really big things that's weird that they didn't talk about, but you kind of give them a pass because they eventually did do comics. So that's cool. Robert? I was introduced to uh, The Last Airbender by Nathan and James, I think probably in a lead up to the movie coming out. I know the two of them have watched it and have enjoyed it very much. So I watched it and I also enjoyed it. I'm not a super fan by any means. It's one of those series that I've watched once and then never really watched again. Not because I didn't like it, it just didn't grab me like some of the other series that I continually rewatch did. Like, uh, for example, like Dragon Ball Z. Um, I did also see Legend of Korra and loved that one too, more than the last, more than the Aang series. I think it was just a little bit more older, uh, more mature than the Aang series was. And so I just, I guess the age that I was at that time, that show stuck with me a lot more. I did go see the movie uh, with James and probably some other friends, I believe, at that time when it came out. So I'm a fan of the show and that I liked it, but not so much that, you know, I've rewatched and rewatched it. So I don't remember a whole lot of the show, which will kind of influenced how I feel about this movie. Um, it was released in July 1 of 2010. Uh, it was directed and written by M. Night Shyamalan but it was met quickly with a lot of disdain from the fan base and critics. It had an estimated budget of $150 million. The opening weekend revenue was only 40 million and the gross US revenue was 131. So it's easy to see why this is considered a huge flop. 
but we'll take a deeper dive into what the movie did wrong and if it did anything right at all. A lot of the things that were wrong with it were just the same little things repeated ad nauseum over and over, like poor dialogue, underwhelming choreography, lackluster performances, whether that was from directing or casting, little column A, little column B, an inadequate adaptation from the source material, which led to sad design choices. Because these errors happen repeatedly, we're gonna try to break down our review into the following segments. What was the worst choreographed scene? The worst example of adaptation from the source material? Who said the worst line? What character could have been cast better? And lastly, did the movie do anything well or even passable? Before we get too far to this, I do want to point out we did take into consideration that M. Night had eight hours worth of material that he had to cut down into probably less than a two-hour segment. So we were a little forgiving with him cutting out a lot of the stuff and understanding that he couldn't tell everything that happened in book one of The Legend of A. Let's go through a brief synopsis of the Avatar world and the movie. In this world, it's kind of like magic. They use their chi to bend the elements to their will, kind of being one with nature around them. We have those that can bend air, water, earth, and fire. The problem is, is no one can bend them all except for the Avatar. And so in this movie, we meet uh, Southern Water Tribe characters, Katara and Sokka, as they're out looking for food, hunting for food. And they stumble upon a giant ball of ice with some light shining inside and they break it open and appears this small child who we later will learn is actually the avatar of this generation of the air nomads. When he was encased in the ice, the fire nation took the opportunity that the avatar was missing and basically kind of took over all of the kingdoms, unleashed a war and submitted everybody to their will. In freeing Aang, the now current avatar from the ice, the Fire Nation Prince Zuko is alerted to the avatar's presence or potentially the avatar presence, he doesn't know yet, and goes to that village and takes Aang captive. Katara and Sokka are then charged by their mother to help the avatar learn the elements to then help restore balance in the world. They go and free the avatar, or actually he frees himself, but they go and they help free him from the Fire Nation's captivity and travel north towards the North Water Tribe uh, to start teaching Aang how to bend water. Because it turns out he doesn't know how to bend anything except for air, and the Avatar's got to bend them all. And this is book one, so he's learning how to bend water. Along their trip, they help free some Earth Nation tribes. They have a couple run-ins with the Fire Nation, and eventually they reach the Northern Water Tribe where Aang learns how to bend water. On the side, we get kind of a B storyline with Zuko, who's trying to reestablish his honor. He's kind of lost his honor with his family after challenging his father's decision on a, on a matter involving their army. And he's cast out from the kingdom and must prove himself to reestablish his honor. The way he's going to prove that is by capturing the Avatar. And so we kind of get this B story where Zuko is fighting with the challenges of being banished from the Fire Kingdom and restoring that honor. And then he is trying to capture the Avatar. The movie culminates in a final battle at the Northern Water Tribe between the Northern Water Tribe and the Fire Nation as they try to capture Aang. A lot of the power from the various tribes comes from different things involving the spirits and the world around them. So we have the water spirits that are amplifying the waterbender's power 
to help them win in the battle. And the Fire Nation manages to kill one of the water spirits, gaining the upper hand. While this is happening, Aang has a connection with the spirit world, which the Avatar is very much tied into. The Avatar is considered the bridge between the real world and the spirit world. And he's supposed to kind of bring the two together to establish balance. He learns a couple of things from a spirit dragon and then is able to ultimately help win the fight uh, at the end of the movie and push the Fire Nation away, albeit for the time being. We'll never know because we don't actually ever get a sequel. And with that, let's just go ahead and start with the first category of the worst choreography. And for me, every scene that tried to use bending was very terrible, but the worst one was the Earth Kingdom prison camp because not only do you have people trying to earth bend and fire bend and air bend and even a little bit of water bending, all four of the elements, the whole setup was preposterous. Just the way they were in prison compared to how they were imprisoned with the show didn't line up. It wasn't a very menacing prison for the Earth Kingdom people to be sent into. And just overall, everything was terrible with it. There was no consistency with the way the characters should have acted. The choreography itself was horrible. It just looked like they were doing dances to make all these elements dance around themselves. And then there's that one part where you have this whole line of earthbenders who are just kind of like marching and then one rock slowly drifts across the scene and it just, it was the biggest disappointing fight in the entire movie. James? Sort of along the same lines, I kind of had to go with, at the end of the movie, there's a duel between Katara and Zuko. And it also had this same issue of bending moving a lot slower than it looks like it should have been maybe they were trying to go with like oh this is like a bullet time version of bending but the characters were still moving at their same speed so it's like well that's not what they're going for at one point you have zuko he set some fire because the rules for firebenders for the movie versus the show are just stupid but we'll get into that later i'm sure he sets a couple of fires. He sends one off to the side to Katara and then another off to the side. But they're going so slow, like she dodges the first one, cool. And then all of a sudden, ugh, she gets hit by the second one. And it just, it does not work. It also is not helped by the fact that the water effects in this, the CGI for it, were not great. Water is one of the hardest things I've understood to have CGI done for. Something about the reflections, I think, or just trying to animate water. I'm not an animator. I can't speak to that. But just from what I've kind of read and seen, so that didn't really help any. That it was just a very badly done scene. And it's not exactly helped by the fact that this is the second time in the movie that these two characters have met. Part of that's because they're condensing, again, a 20-episode series down to a two-hour movie. So you don't have as much, you know, room for them to connect as you did in the series, but this is the second time they met. So this duel just loses any kind of impact it would have had otherwise. That's what I think. Robert? Uh, I agree with both of you guys pretty strongly. Anytime they're bending, it's just, it's bad. It looks like they're trying to perform a kata. There's a lot of what they're doing is, looks like it's very rooted in martial arts. And so, you know, it's like they're trying to perform that, but they were only shown how to do it one time. And then we're trying to perform it from memory days after they were shown. So it's not even like they were, I'm going to show you right now and then turn around and do it. It was like, here's how you perform this kata. Okay, let's do it. 
no, we're not filming that scene until like two weeks from now. And then they have to recall it from memory. It just, you could tell that they weren't, they weren't in it. A lot of martial arts and performing a kata is about being aware of yourself and your movements and the environment around you. It's very fluid and very, you know, in, you know, very reflection, reflecting inward. And so, you know, when I've seen, like I have cousins that were in martial arts and when I saw them perform katas, like you knew that shit. Like that was rock solid and, and looked like they were in a whole, they were just in a bubble and nothing around them mattered because they were so focused on the task. And, uh, and I get that in, in some places the characters are still learning how to bend, but it just, it looks bad, like really, really bad, especially when you consider later on their skills are supposed to be developed, but nothing in their movement improves. They still look like they don't know what they're doing. And I agree with, with James. Yeah, water effects are hard, but honestly, I could take a water bottle and trace it across the screen on a string and it would still look better. So while I'll hand it to the digital effects artist that making water is hard, it's still very bad. It's terrible. May as well go ahead and explain what James was referring to with the, the fire bending rules. In the movie, they make it a point that firebenders cannot create fire from nothing. They need an already existing burning flame source in order to bend that flame. Whereas in the show, it's presented as more of a firebender is able to create breath, or sorry, create fire from their own breath. It's an extension of their breath and their, and their key to extend that flame of life outside of their body. And so the fact that they messed up so horribly on the basic concept for firebending, I don't know why, except for maybe they were trying to get the firebenders to not seem as powerful, but they made the firebenders way worse and way less powerful with other representations they did, uh, which we definitely will be getting to later because it's one of my biggest pet peeves about, again, how they portray the Fire Nation in this movie. But let's go ahead and move on to the actual adaptation from the source material. In the movie version, Aang goes into the Avatar state shortly after he gets to the Southern Air Temple. And he, uh, he goes into the spirit realm and he sees a spirit dragon. And I guess the dragon is supposed to be guiding him, like the beginning text mentioned, that the spirits often guide the Avatar to help them make decisions to keep balance in the world. But it, it was so out of place for me because the only time we see dragons in the show is actual physical real world dragons. And I feel like they were trying to make it seem like dragons in the movie were more of a spiritual creature, which isn't true. So the fact that they have this, what a lot of Western cultures believe is a very powerful being guiding Aang and he's a spiritual creature that is guiding Aang, it didn't mesh well with me. It just, it seemed like there is such a great premise for dragons later in the show in book three, when he actually learns firebending, that they should have just waited to use dragons there. And they should have fallen back on one of the other spirit creature designs, like Haibei or, oh, what's his name? Ko, the Stealer of Faces. There was a myriad of different spiritual creatures they could have used to help guide Aang. And I just, I have no clue why they went with a blue dragon to help him. James? My worst adaptation from this, I have to think, is the character Admiral slash Commander Zhao there's a little debate on what he is in this movie versus the series. This is one of the evil characters and it's the way that they kind of get rid of him slash kill him in the animated series. This happens at the climax of season one 
he's on this ice bridge, he's having it out with Zuko, and they have a discussion, and Zuko walks away from him, and it's a big character moment for him, and then all of a sudden, we see Aang come out here in the Avatar state, and he has taken the form of a giant spirit koi fish kaiju type creature, and he's wrecking the Fire Nation soldiers, and then he comes upon Zhao, who had done a lot of mean things to the spirits, and he just whacks him, and we assume he's dead. Later on in the canon, in the sequel series, we find out that he's actually transported to the spirit world, which is honestly kind of the way they deal with him, a fate worse than death. But in the movie, they outright kill him. Not from Zuko, not from Aang, not from any of the main characters. From four random water tribe soldiers. They just come, they encase him in a big ball of water, they suffocate him, and it's kind of left ambiguous at first of if he's even dead, because he just plops on the ground. He's really soaking wet and not moving. Later on in the movie, we do get dialogue from another character who says that he is dead, but it was just a, a terrible waste to how they could have taken care of this character. It, it should not have happened this way, not at all. Very underwhelming, like a lot of things in this movie. Robert? I'm going to keep on with the Fire Nation here. For me, the worst adaptation is the entire Fire Nation. From what I remember in the show, which isn't a whole lot, but things that stuck out to me is that the Fire Nation is a huge threat. You don't mess with the Fire Nation. There's a whole reason why people are held captive by them and fear them is because they're a huge threat. The stakes are high versus the Fire Nation. They kind of communicate that here in the movie, but they don't do a very good job of representing that. Going back to Nathan talking about the Earth Kingdom prison camp, we've got three Fire Nation guards. I want to say it was three, maybe four, less than a handful of Fire Nation guards are guarding this Earth Kingdom prison camp full of earthbenders. They make it a point to say that they took all of the earthbenders from that area and put them in this camp. And there's got to be probably at least somewhere around 20-ish people, maybe more, imprisoned in this camp. So you would imagine if they only left three firebenders, three firebenders are more than enough to keep 20 earthbenders surrounded by earth captive. And Aang walks in, being held captive by the Fire Nation, with Sokka and Katara, and he gets upset that the Earthbenders aren't defending themselves and basically kicks the butt of the three Fire Nation uh, guards like it was nothing. A kid that was freed from the ice literally 10 minutes before, maybe not literally, but you know what I mean, figuratively, 10 minutes before and earlier in the movie is kicking Fire Nation butt when he's been locked up for about 100 years. So it just... It doesn't line up. Every time you see the Fire Nation, they try to make them look threatening, but nothing they do really seems all that threatening. The, even at, towards the end of the movie, in the final battle, you know, when, spoiler alert, Zhao kills one of, this, one of the spirits and the Water Tribe loses their OP power, boosted by the, the moon at that moment, they're still not all that threatening. They're still kind of able to survive-ish until, uh, I forget her name, but the princess gives up her life to then, you know, uh, give rebirth to the, this, the water spirit and then the moon comes back up and they kick butt again. It just, 
the Fire Nation is never, ever represented like it is in this show. Threatening, keeping the main cast on their heels all the time, where they have to run instead of fight because 99.9% of the time, they're going to lose. And they failed miserably. Case in point, Zhao, Commander, Admiral, whatever, should be pretty powerful, should be able to hold his own, is just drowned to death, maybe, by, like James said, four random waterbending soldiers. Pretty lame representation or adaptation of the Fire Nation, if you ask me. Now, you may be wondering at home, well, how did the show do it differently in regards to the uh, Earth prison? In the show, the Fire Nation takes all the Earthbenders to a like oil platform out at sea. It's, so it's all metal. Earthbenders can't bend metal. They're surrounded by water. And so there's only ships coming in and out that are controlled by the Fire Nation. So it's an actual prison. And then more importantly, there's nothing around for them to bend. They are just stuck in their clothes, doing nothing all day, and being tortured by guards. And there's way more than just three or four guards, way more than a handful. You have a warden who is continuously antagonizing and terrorizing his prisoners because, let's face it, he can. And it's not until Katara actually stows away and is able to get cold to fall out and be like, here's Earth, bend this Earth, you can do it, you are mighty Earthbenders, that they start to get their spirit back. Whereas it was just a few words from, from Ong in the movie when, again, they're surrounded by Earth and rocks they should be able to control all this time. So just to kind of help compare and contrast why they were more menacing in the show than they were than w when it was ported to the movie. But I think the best part is coming up in that we're going to discuss the worst line of dialogue in the movie. And for me, it's, it's terrible because I have so much to say about it, and it's not a lot of words. And it's, again, the blue dragon that Aang keeps going back to to get guidance from whenever he's able to meditate, specifically in the Northern Water Tribe before... Actually, no, it was during the fight where he goes to meditate and speak with the spirit and try to figure out how he can stop the Fire Nation from attacking the uh, Northern Water Tribe. And the, the dragon tells him that Aang is running away from his grief of the genocide of his people and his part in it. Okay, I, I can understand that. Then he goes on to say that Ong is angry. And I'm just like, how? There's the one part early on when he goes into the Avatar state and he gets mad. But other than that, we never see him mad. He never gets frustrated. He never strikes out. He's just always this calm, cool, kind of not necessarily collected, but he's still a kid. He never really expresses anger. So how can this spiritual dragon tell him that he's angry? So it just, that didn't rub me. But he keeps talking and he says that he must let go. But he doesn't specify what? Must let go of his grief? Must let go of his anger? What is he supposed to let go of, Mr. Dragon? And then... He also says, as the Avatar, he's not meant to hurt others, which is, it's true. The Avatar is not supposed to go out and just bully people and beat them up and do whatever. But it's so awkwardly worded because sometimes you have to. We even have Avatar Kyoshi, who famously said, I killed Chin the Great. You know, she went out and she said, look, you are going to do as I say because you can't stop me. So, I mean, there are times when you have to use force. And that's kind of a thing that, that Aang had to learn in that he is a pacifist. He is a very nonviolent person because he was raised by the Aeronomads. He's a very spiritual kind of person, but he has to be decisive. So for this dragon to tell him that he shouldn't hurt people, yes, it's true, but sometimes you got to get in there and get dirty. He then tells Aang that he should use the ocean and show them the power of water. 
how do you not hurt somebody by showing them the power of water? I mean, like if you're in the middle of a storm, you're probably going to get hurt by it from drowning. You know, it's just, it's, that's how it is. The power of water can hurt you. There's so much of it when it just comes together. And then I hate too that this led me to think that we're going to get that big koi kaiju fight that's coming up because he's going to use the ocean spirit to turn into this big kaiju to fight the fire nation. And then it, it doesn't because he just brings in the tide and then sends the fire nation ships out. So that's nice because then he's not fighting like he doesn't want to, but that's not really the power of the ocean. That's not the power of water. Yes, it is one, but it, it's, it's so dumb. <laughs> it's the power of the water park wave pool, Nathan. <sighs> yeah, I suppose you're right. What about you, James? What was the most disappointing dialogue wise? To me, my worst line of dialogue from this movie isn't quite as personal seeming as Nathan's, no offense. It's to set it up. There's this moment in the movie before the Earth Nation people are imprisoned and they meet them. They are in the forest. They're kind of like foraging or whatever, Aang and Katara and Sokka. And this random boy runs up to them. And it turns out like it's an Earth Nation boy. And then he's kind of hides behind them. And it's like, hey, random kid, what's up? And then out from behind the trees come some Fire Nation soldiers. And they're all like, hey, we, we need that boy. And they say, he was bending tiny stones at us from behind a tree. It really hurt. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was really dumb. That's all I can really say about it. It was stupid. It really hurt. <laughs> well, no, duh. It's, it, they're throwing stones at you. The, the delivery of it in the movie was a lot worse. A lot worse. Robert? Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. For me, the worst line of dialogue takes place very early in the movie, shortly after Ong, Aang is freed uh, from uh, the, the ball of ice that he's trapped in, which then, of course, signals the Fire Nation, who is, of course, literally right down the street from this random Southern Water Tribe settlement. They are back in the uh, settlement and the Fire Nation shows up. Zuko is there looking for the Avatar because of course that light that's shown in the air had to have been from the Avatar. I'm assuming it would have to be because maybe that just doesn't happen a lot in that world. But Zuko shows up, takes Aang captive and Katara is telling Sokka, the line is, that boy is our responsibility. Sokka doesn't want to get involved. He's like, we got to stay out of this. Uh, mind you, Sokka actually wants to get involved. Katara stops him and then immediately wants to fight the Fire Nation once they take Aang and says the line, uh, Sokka's like, what are you doing? And she's like, that boy is our responsibility. Why is he your responsibility? You literally just met him five seconds ago. You freed this mysterious boy from the ice. He doesn't seem to be all phased by the fact that he was trapped in the ice. He's actually just kind of like, oh, hey, how are you guys? Uh, I, I guess I just woke up from a nap. I guess I'll go about my business and go home now. And then for some reason now, Katara thinks that that boy is a responsibility. I, I, the line doesn't work for me because they haven't done anything to establish any stakes at this point. They don't know who the kid is. There's some suggestion there that he might be the avatar, but we don't actually get any dialogue 
mentioning that for for sure until they talk to i'm guessing it's the grandmother or mother grandmother, grandmother right at a point she's like you know oh that boy is the avatar you have to go and help him that made more sense than the line taking place before that conversation of that boy is our responsibility if they had the conversation with the with the mom and then Sokka's like i don't want to get involved and guitar is like that boy is our responsibility then it makes sense because the mother has established that that boy is the avatar and he needs help and she believes that Katara and Sokka can help but that's not when we get that line we get it way before that happens and so it's just kind of like yeah I agree with Sokka uh no he's not we just met this kid randomly out of nowhere why is he resp- our responsibility so just I don't I don't feel it was terribly misplaced so it was it was pretty bad not as bad as it really hurt, <laughs> but uh, pretty terrible in, in my opinion. So culminating all this terrible stuff, we have who should have been cast differently or who should have, yeah, who should have been cast better. And everything that's been said about the Fire Nation, I'm going to address now because I feel like everything that was wrong with the presentation of the Fire Nation is summed up in Cliff Curtis's performance as Fire Lord Ozai in that he himself is not menacing, so the Fire Nation is not menacing. The way he speaks, it's very subtle. It's not very commanding. It's not like barking authority. It's not, you will do as I say, otherwise I will kill you. It is, you should probably do this if you don't want something bad to happen to you or your family. And it's just so underhanded, which is not how Ozai is presented in this show at all. And it, I just they should have I hate it (laughs) I hate how wimpy he comes across as I hate that he was the one who suggested to kill the uh the spirits Tui and La or especially just the moon spirit to Commander Zhao whereas it really was Commander Zhao who decided I'm going to make a name of myself and be the moon slayer it's there was so much misplacement and misdirection with the character with the Ozai character in the movie that I don't feel there's any way to recover from it. And while it may not have been the actor himself, just the way that it was portrayed by the actor, it's just get rid of him. Replace him, get someone who actually looks menacing on the screen. Someone who doesn't look like, it looks more like. So, James? Just to briefly also touch upon the Ozai stuff, in the animated series, you have freaking Mark Hamill voicing Ozai. And he does a really good job of it. He doesn't quite dial it into as chaotic as his animated Joker voice, but it's kind of that same pitch. When you listen to an animated Mark Hamill, eventually they sort of run together. But he definitely has that menace to it. And also, just the visual aspect of Cliff Curtis as Ozai versus animated Ozai, they don't give him his nice flowing locks that the animated version has. He's got hair down to his butt, like... He looks freaking awesome. And instead, you got this, whatever they did with him. But my choices, originally, I was going to decide to maybe talk about the kid actor they got to play, Aang slash Ong. But I figured it's not worth the pick on this kid. He's only been in one, one other movie since The Last Airbender. They hired him because he was really good at Taekwondo or martial arts. So I get it. I'll probably chalk up to it being he's a child actor and he has M. Night Shyamalan directing him. 
not a great combination. Instead, I'm going to talk about a twofer. We've got Niccolo Peltz as Katara and Jackson Rathbone as Sokka. These two, these two actors are white. Everybody else in the Southern Water Tribe is kind of like the Eskimo type characters. Inuits. Like Inuits, yes, my apologies. So one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> it was not the best decision. Like, I don't know if they couldn't have just found actors of that proper race, if that's what they wanted to go for, for these people, I, I understand. It's so bad that whenever anybody critiqued these decisions when the casting first came out, it led to the term race bending. And it's still a term that people online use to today. Whenever a movie is it has a casting and it's like, oh, wait, in the source material, that character was, you know, African-American or Indian or Asian, but instead they cast a white guy? What is going on here? This is race bending. That's where this comes from goes all the way back to this movie. Not the greatest decision in the world. Robert? I'm just going to go ahead and say that everyone is a bad casting choice in this movie. Absolutely everybody. But if I had to pick one in relation to how the character is in this show, the worst casting for me has to be Uncle Iroh. In the show, I remember Uncle Iroh being... Other than, you know, we'll, we'll skip physical appearance because that really shouldn't matter all too much, right? But Uncle Iroh is more jolly. He's a more peaceful kind of guy. He always seems just kind of okay, going with the flow. Regardless of what's happening, he's not losing his cool. He's pretty, you know, collected and seems to be actually pretty happy even when crap is hitting the fan. And uh, we don't really get that uh, too much here. Uh, thank you, Need for the note that Sean Tobe, or Tube is who plays the character uh, of Uncle Iroh in the movie. But it's just, while the actor didn't physically doesn't really fit the part, I don't feel like he played that jolly, everything's cool, we're just having a great time regardless of what's happening kind of, you know, character personality we get with Uncle Iroh in this show. You know, yeah, he's kind of, you know, very calm about things, but he's more calm in a I don't want to lose my cool kind of way. Let's see what happens. Not a, hey, no matter what, we're going to have a great time kind of attitude that we get from Uncle Iroh in the show. Uh, you know, a kind of go with the flow kind of guy that Uncle Iroh is in the show. We don't, I don't really feel that here with Uncle Iroh. But, you know, I will talk about physical appearance a little bit. I, I feel like sometimes the character needs to at least look a little bit like they do in the show. But this the actor doesn't look anything like Uncle Iroh at, a, at all. And so it just kind of like throws me for a loop when I see one of my favorite characters and you're kind of excited about who they cast and what he's going to look like and act like. And then it's just not anywhere close to what you expected. It's just pretty disappointing. I will say this though, I, I slightly disagree with James about the casting choice for Sokka. Not, I, I get where he's coming from, that hiring him as a white actor for a character that in the show is really more represented by the Inuits really should have been the direction they went in and not make the character race bend that character into a white he person. He was as white as the snow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I will, have, I will hand it to Jackson Rathbone for actually though capturing the character's personality very well in the movie. 
I think it's one of the first things that I noticed when I was watching it, you know, as a preface, it's been a very long time since I've seen the show. So when I, when I was watching, rewatching this movie now for our review, I kind of had to go in like blind, like anyone who has never seen the show before, because I just didn't remember a whole lot. But as soon as Jackson Rathbone shows up on the screen and you hear the dialogue and the, situ the situational comedy that he's in, I was instantly reminded of Sokka from the show. And so in terms of the casting choice, other than race, Jackson Rathbone, I think, was a very good choice because I think he understood the character well and represented him well enough in terms of personality and character. Uh, that's my only disagreement with James on the casting of Sokka. But I still maintain that regardless, everyone is a bad casting choice. And, and I don't know if M. Night Shyamalan makes a cameo appearance as some random character in the background, but even if that he was, that would also have been a bad casting choice. <laughs> so with all this bad stuff, there was actually a good part that I really enjoyed. And it was early in the movie, Ong just escapes capture from Zuko and, and Iro after they do the test, the dumb test to determine if he's the Avatar or not. And um, they come across Commander Zhao, and he invites them on board his vessel to share lunch with them. And I love this scene because, you know, trimming down eight hours worth of material down to two, it was a very quick setup and explanation of the relationship between Zuko, Iroh, and Commander Zhao. It was very succinct, and it's pretty much just Commander Zhao talking the entire time. And it sets up the rivalry between Zhao and Zuko, which was an ongoing thing throughout uh, book one of the, uh, the Legend of Aang, the, the show. And then it showed how Iroh was trying to help calm and, and kind of ashwaj Zuko while he's budding into the person he's supposed to be and not have him like being all ragey all the time. But it still showed, it still allowed Zuko to be able to come out and be like, I am the prince. And when I get my honor back, you done f***ed up. So, I mean, it's, it was such a great way to help explain all these different characters' personalities and how they interact with each other so you know what to expect going forward through the movie. And I, I was, when I saw that scene, I was like, okay, this is cool. I like this. Before this, there are some other errors, but if they keep doing this, this movie could be pretty good. And then they didn't, but <laughs> James? So I kind of liked the, they did a, a recreation of the opening in the opening of the animated series, you have the four previous incarnations of the Avatar because it goes in a cycle through all the different nations. I forget the exact order, but actually I could probably figure it out because we've got air, water, earth, fire. Yeah, I got that right. Anyway, so in the series, you've got the four previous incarnations of the Bender and they all different, they show off the different elements. And they did a really good job, I thought, of recreating that in live action. They even had the same kind of backdrop that you would have in the series. I don't know for sure if they thought it through to have these characters actually represent the previous incarnations of the Avatar. I don't want to say one way or the other, but probably not. And the only other good thing that, I, that was cool about this movie is that it indirectly led to the actress who played Princess Yue, Seychelle Gabrielle, ended up being cast as the voice of Asami Sato in the Legend of Korra sequel series. And I say kind of indirect because whenever she was auditioning to be in the Legend of Korra, apparently the creators, Mike DiMartino and Brian Konietzko, 
didn't even remember that she was in the live action movie because that's how much they don't want to think about that thing anymore. They have criticized it. So it was just kind of happy happenstance that, hey, she was in a live action movie and then she was cast in the sequel cartoon series. So I thought that was pretty good. Robert? The thing that I thought was good goes back to uh, what I said about the casting of Jackson Rathbone. Um, other than him, I think the humor of Saga works really well in the movie. There's a bit where uh, the air bison kind of drops his tail on him. He's never seen this animal before. And he starts trying to crawl out from under him. He's like, he's trying to eat me. He's trying to eat me. And it's just very kind of, again, the situational comedy with Sokka in the movie, I think they captured very well. That character overall, I think, was represented well in the movie. But it was really the only good thing for me. I, I really didn't enjoy much of anything else in the movie. Nothing stood out to me as like, oh, this was nice, or this was okay. Yeah, the intro, sure, I can agree with James. The opening recreation was neat. If only what they showed there in terms of the bending move, the moves and the bending and everything was also represented in the rest of the movie. And it's not at all. Like, So uh, really, the soccer humor is the only thing that works for me uh, in this movie. So to wrap it all up, I mean, in conclusion, I got to say, this movie is terrible. There are moments where I start to get like, there, it's turning around. It's going to be good. It's going to be, no, no. So it just, it's, it's terrible. It never gets good. It just kind of tricks you into thinking it might get good. James? I also thought it was terrible. A couple miscellaneous things that I might not have talked about earlier. I can understand the task of trying to adapt an eight hour animated series of 20 episodes into a two hour movie is rough. I get it. But why spend the first 55 minutes of your movie's length trying to get to condense 17 episodes of content into that time frame and then spend the remaining 49 minutes on the last three episodes? That just means that, hey, you have a semi-decent adaptation of those three episodes because that's an appropriate length for it. But the rest of the movie, you have things squished up so much that it's just, you have so much cut, it, mm, it does not work. You don't have enough time to establish any kind of character between everybody. They just completely ruin Katara. She doesn't have any real kind of agency. Like they, in the series, they try to set up a romance, which I think Nathan has pointed out to me earlier, the series takes place over the course of a year, so the two characters kind of getting together by the end of it is a little stretch, but it's three seasons of a show. You can kind of forgive it. You have 61 episodes to build that up. In this, they don't take any kind of time to build any kind of romance between the characters, which might also be a little harder given that I think the age difference between the kid actor for Aang and Nicola Peltz, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's not exactly close. It just, this movie, there was no need for it. If I recall at the time, it was kind of a pet project for M. Night Shyamalan, something to do with his kids, I don't know, but the only saving grace is that Netflix is working on a live, ad live action adaptation for a series, not just like a one-off movie type thing. Hopefully that'll be good. Recently we got news that the creators have decided to step down from it. So it's not going to have the main creators, Mike and Brian, behind it. So I'm a little worried now. I guess we'll see in another year or two how that turns out. Robert? I want to reiterate that it had been a long time since I've seen the show. And I did mention a lot of things that I remembered about it that I didn't like in this movie. 
but when I was thinking about how terrible the movie was, because I remember so little about the show, I tried to look at this through the lens of someone who has not experienced the legend of Aang uh, in the cartoon show form. And just walking into this, like any other movie that you've walked into, you're just like, hey, Last Airbender, catch the trailer online, which by the way, we'll drop a link in the description if you want to check that out, or just go watch it on Netflix if you've got Netflix. But I'm trying to look at it from somebody who's going in blind, doesn't know the characters, doesn't know the show, just experiencing this like any other movie that they'd be walking into. And even then, this movie's terrible. The story doesn't play out very well. Like we've covered through the various sections, the dialogue is very poor. Uh, The the uh, CG work with the water and even the fire in some cases is very bad. There are moments where Zuko is doing his movements to bend fire, but the fire isn't reacting in the same way that he's moving. When you watch the show, the elements kind of follow their movements. When they're bending water and they're flowing their arms around their body. The water is following their movements, syncing up with them because they are one with the elements. They're bending the element with their with their chi, with their spirit, and especially with the Fire Nation. But we don't get that here. Like Zuko does some moves real quickly, and then the fire just kind of hits the guy, and and it's over. It's just like a like a, like a sparkler versus a mortar at a fireworks show. You're expecting this huge explosion, this big, grandiose fire attack, and we get sparks. (laughs) And so I just, I'm I'm trying to look at this without thinking about how it is in the show. You know, I kind of contradicted myself by bringing that up now, but there isn't anything about this thing to like, whether you know the show or not. It's it's terrible. (laughs) So before we head out, we're going to cover a small segment we like to call Terrible Times. We'll share things that we are interested in at the time, things we're watching, reading, experiencing, uh, stories about current events or life events that are taking place. Just a little bit of catch up, sharing before we head out the door here. So I'll go ahead and start first. I've been watching The Boys on Amazon Prime. Uh, It's based on a comic series. I was turned on to the show by another podcast that I listened to called Death Battle Cast, uh, where they're doing a special episode of their death battle show with a battle royale with the seven, which is one of the main groups in the show, The Boys. And they recommend watching it before you watch the episode. And so I figured, ah, I'll check it out. And I've actually fallen in love with the show. Now I'll have to warn you, it is extremely graphic and it can also be extremely offensive. The content is very, very much adult in nature. So it's not for kids. It's not a show you wanna watch around your kids. But the story is incredibly compelling. The acting is top-notch. I mean, like, if The Last Airbender is negative one, (laughs) The Boys is a billion. (laughs) In terms of casting choices and the acting and the dialogue, there's not a single wasted frame in this show. Uh, So it's been fantastic. I just binged it over the last couple days. Again, it's on Amazon Prime. So if you don't have Amazon Prime, I'm sorry, but uh, it is a great, great show. I would check that out. I also got to recently build the Lego helmet for Boba Fett. That was (laughs) a ton of fun to do. If you do some searching there around YouTube on my private channel, I did like a time-lapse video of it that I thought was pretty neat. It was a fun build. 
Uh, if you're a huge Boba Fett fan like I am and a huge Lego fan like I am, pick up this set. It is totally worth it. James, anything to share? So we're recording this on uh, Sunday, September 14th. Previous day to this, the 13th, we had an announcement coming out of, I believe it was uh, PAX uh, Penny Arcade Expo is doing an online version this year because of the whole COVID-19 pandemic stuff. <laughs> and, at, yeah, and at this online version of their expo, they had a panel from Gearbox Studios who do the Borderlands series. And at this panel, part of the announcements that they talked about was doing a tabletop RPG game called Bunkers and Badasses. For those that don't know, in 2013, there was a DLC expansion pack for Borderlands 2 called Tiny Tina's Assault on Dragon Keep. And it was really awesome. And it had a lot of the typical Borderlands humor. And it also had the characters in that game playing a tabletop RPG game. And that was the whole point of the DLC. A lot of the fans over the years, this came out in 2013 again, have been wanting like, hey, we would like an actual version of this, please. Please, Daddy, can we have some more? We would like this. And some people have done their own little fan versions, trying to incorporate it into other RPG lines. I don't know how those have turned out, honestly, myself. But they made this announcement yesterday, and I thought, oh, great, this sounds fun. I might actually order it. Who knows? We'll see. I'll just have to find some people to maybe play it. Anyone? <laughs> Bueller? Six Bueller. feet, wear a mask, wash your hands. <laughs> exactly. RPG kind of stuff can work online, too. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But I was excited. Nathan, what you got? It's fun. It's funny you mentioned that because uh, Jessica has actually been running some campaigns online through Discord, and they, they've worked out kind of well. And when you shared me that link uh, the other day with the uh, Bunkers and Badasses, I, uh, I started massaging her neck. and was like, babe, can I spend some money? And she's like, how much? Because I'm rubbing her neck, you know. And I go, a hundred bucks? What for? And I'm like, a, a, a role-playing game book and some miniatures and some dice and some other things that you like as well and she's like give me 10 minutes of this and you got a deal <laughs> so, um yeah check out the link of nothing else because it looks like really cool and I, I can't wait for it to actually ship they're taking pre-orders right now they're not actually shipping yet i think maybe november i think i remember seeing the date is when they're shipping but just yeah check it out see for yourself i can't wait but for me, uh, the thing I want to share is I've been watching a lot of YouTube, YouTube playthroughs of this game called Among Us. I have no idea how long it's been out. I only just discovered it like two weeks ago, and it is hilarious to watch. So yeah, go to YouTube or Twitch. A lot of Twitch players are doing it. Just search Among Us, and it's almost like, um, like a murder mystery game. And it's, it's super cheap. You can play it for free on mobile, apparently. I bought it on Steam for five bucks five bucks for a game where you get to kill a bunch of people potentially and then like try to get away with it by lying it, it it's such an awesome premise and i just it makes me happy every time i watch a playthrough of it so is it supposed to be like a social deduction type game yeah yeah i did play around with this uh i discovered it through meme culture uh browsing <laughs> reddit there have been a ton of memes surrounding this show or not show the game and i decided to give it a shot i I saw that it was in the game store. That's how I found it. I saw the memes, and then I was looking for browsing, 
perusing the app store on my phone, looking for a new game to kill some time and saw Among Us listed there. And I was like, hmm, uh, I think I'm going to check this out. I've seen all the memes. Maybe it is that good. Maybe it's like a Fall Guys, right? Like Fall Guys has memes all over the place. And so I'm like, maybe it'll be about the same thing. So I downloaded the game and watched the tutorial and played a couple practice things. And I did one game only so far. But it was pretty fun. Um, I think the more you put into it, you learn the mechanics and, and how everything works. You'll have a better time, but it does seem to be even better when you play with friends, uh, just because there's that aspect of, you know, like Nathan said, you get to run around and secretly kill people and then lie about it to try and survive and watch as the rest of the people in the group vote off who they think the imposter is. Uh, and then seeing the wrong person go out, especially if you're the good guy, uh, which is what I experienced in the first game that I played. And, you know, you're all kind of just discussing there. And I'm even like, Pink was acting really strange. He was just standing there doing nothing. Like, I think Pink is the, is the imposter. And then everybody votes Pink. And then Pink gets thrown out the airlock. And then the words pop up, the dreaded words pop up, Pink was not the imposter. And you're like, <laughs> no! I picked the wrong person. That guy <laughs> is dead because of me. Why did I choose it correctly? So I just, it it looks like it'll be a ton of fun to play. So I can't wait uh, for Nathan to try it out. Uh, James, I would try, um, try it out as well. And maybe we'll do a Let's Play on Nathan's channel later on uh, where we'll, we'll play it together and see what kind of shenanigans we can get into. I, I think it's going to be a ton of fun. So that wraps up our episode for today. Speaking of Jessica, I want to again throw out a thank you to our wives who make this show possible for taking care of the cats and the children while we sit here and talk about horrible movies of adaptations of our favorite cartoon shows. So thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Stephanie. And thank you, Layla, for everything that you do. And uh, that's all for me. We'll catch you in the next one. End of book one. <laughs> Be good to each other out there. And why did none of us mention that the worst thing in the movie is that there were no cabbages?